Well, when Longfellow wrote those words, our nation was in the midst of a great civil war, and everything seemed pretty hopeless when it came to peace on earth. It seemed like the promise of the angels was hollow and meaningless. And in the midst of that, those church bells served as a reminder that God's not dead, nor doth he sleep. God's not finished. He has a plan. And he is sovereign over all things, including the affairs of men. And so in the midst of that dark and trying time, and in the midst of great personal tragedy, as Longfellow considered those church bells ringing, he needed, as we need, reminders of who God is. Today, we're going to study some of that idea. The idea of reminders, sacred ceremonies, and as we do, I would invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Before we return to our uh, series in Numbers in the Wilderness and we consider all that that, uh, that that book has to offer for us, we begin the new year as we ended the old year, considering the Christ who came to understand him a little bit better. And today, this celebration, this remembrance celebration that we uh, participate in each month is given to be a reminder. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, draws our attention back to the book of Numbers, draws our attention back to the Old Testament as we see the people of Israel participating together in the good and the bad. Let's begin uh, reading with verse 1. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, before I continue, I just want to, to uh, point out as we're reading this word, this is a reference to what happened at the Exodus. And they were baptized in what God was doing. So they passed through the Red Sea as God parted that sea. And then the physical baptism the immersion happened to the egyptians and it didn't go well for them right god drowned them in the red sea but there was a spiritual baptism a participation in what god was doing okay so with that as the backdrop Let's read this again. I'm going to back up to verse 1. I just wanted to, to clarify, and then we'll come back to this. For I do not want you to be ignorant, ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. 
for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things, as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? With that, let's pray. Father God, as we have opened your word and as we endeavor to study it this morning, we ask that you would open it to us and that you would open us to your word that you might speak through the word to us by your spirit, that you might convict our hearts and change our affections, that we might desire the life that you offer. Father, change our will by it, that we might know and do your will, that we might act in faith, which is obedience, that you might be honored that your glory might be on display, and that our lives might reflect the high calling to which you've called us. Father, speak now beyond your servant's faltering tongue. Help us to hear no other voice but yours. Protect us from the schemes of the evil one. We're not unaware of his schemes. He wants to bring into our minds all of the distractions of the day, and so, Lord, rather than embracing distraction, we lift these things up to you. 
We have brothers and sisters in this room and outside of it who are hurting today. For whom the holidays have brought pain at least as much as joy. Where the grieving is fresh and hard. Where they are unable to be with loved ones or even worse, are estranged from them. Father, we ask that you would change us to grant us hearts that forgive, that we might offer the grace and mercy that you've offered to us in Christ to others who are likewise undeserving of forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Father, we lift up those who are sick, that you would heal them. And we ask that you would give us a mind that chooses to place these things in your sovereign hands. Be glorified in our study, in our singing, and in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as previously mentioned, this is the very first day not only of the new year, but of the month. And on the first Sunday of the month, we set aside uh, this special time that we call the Remembrance Celebration. We share in an ancient ceremony that you may know as communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Regardless of what you call it, the ceremony itself was instituted by Jesus. He gave us this as an ordinance for the church and he commended us to do it in remembrance of him. So today, as we start this new year, we're going to focus in on that sacred ceremony and what it means to us, particularly in light of the Christmas and Advent season that we've just been celebrating. And so with that in mind, our core reality today as we consider uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and, and really it extends beyond this, but as we consider the text in 1 Corinthians 10, this core reality is that the remembrance celebration reminds us of the living hope we share in Christ. The remembrance celebration reminds us of the living hope we share in Christ. Now, it's important for us to recognize that because Jesus Christ fulfilled God's promise to redeem and be with his people, and because Christ was raised and will return in power, we who have been united to him by faith have a living, eternal, unshakable hope in the Christ who came. All right, so bear that in mind. We've been talking about understanding the Christ who came as we have walked through this, uh, what child is this series? We who have been united to him by faith have a living, eternal, unshakable hope in the Christ who came. When we participate in the remembrance celebration, it's a reminder of our participation in Christ himself. Our participation in the reality of Christ is by faith alone. Let me say that again because I don't want you to miss it. This is really important when we're talking about sacred ceremonies like communion, the remembrance celebration, or baptism. When we're talking about the trappings, if you will, the religious rituals it's important for us to recognize that our participation in the reality of Christ is by faith alone. 
It is not something we gain through religious rituals. This brings up a couple of crucial things for us to understand. First, and you can see this in your programs, sacred ceremonies cannot offer life. Only Christ can. Sacred ceremonies cannot offer life. Only Christ can. Now, depending on your background, some of you have come from sacramental churches of various stripes, and in a sacramentalist perspective, we receive uh, the grace of God by specific ritual means, the sacraments. So when we participate in that which is called a sacrament, it is a means of obtaining God's grace. We maintain that that is not what the Bible teaches, nor was it ever what the Bible taught. That's not some new thing that came up with Jesus. That was always the case, even in Hebrews. So let me draw your attention to Hebrews, I mean, even in the Old Testament. Let me draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 10. We were in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. And the book of Hebrews is given to the uh, tribes of Israel scattered, the diaspora, and these tribes of Israel are going to need somebody to connect the dots for them. You can imagine if you grew up believing that you were the people of God, that, that you had a special covenant relationship with God by being part of Israel, by being a Jew, then this news of Jesus Christ coming as the Messiah and offering salvation not only to the Jew but also to the Gentile, and not through the, through the law but through by grace, through faith, you might be a little confused. And so someone needs to clarify how this fits. I remember uh, some time ago hearing uh, one of Ben Shapiro's Sunday interviews with Ravi Zacharias, who uh, has since passed and, and uh, sort of uh, fell in his reputation. But he asked Ravi Zacharias, that uh, Christian apologist, what does your New Testament offer? What does it do? What's, what's the point of it that's different from the Old Testament? As a Jewish man, I reject the New Testament as Scripture. I, I respect Christians, but I reject that as Scripture. So how does this do anything different than the Old Testament? And without going into detail, I was particularly frustrated on that occasion because I felt like... Dr. Zacharias really dropped the ball in his answer. And I thought, man, hey, Ben, give me a call. <laughs> Let me talk to you about this. Because what the New Testament does is finishes the story. It completes what the Old Testament was always saying. That was all Jesus kept telling folks is, you know, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. After his resurrection, he, he met with the uh, disciples who were going to Emmaus. And on that road, he opened the scriptures to them to show them what the law and the prophets had foretold about Messiah and how they were fulfilled in him. It's a pretty big deal. So the book of Hebrews then takes all of that and seeks to connect the dots for those who understand God according to the law. All right, so uh, in <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 
I, I talked more than I intended to, but I'm going to go ahead and read. Uh, we'll start with verse 1. Notice what he says right out of the gate here. The law, now when he says the law, he's not just talking about the commands. There were three different aspects of law in the Old Testament. We don't need to get into that for today. But when he's talking about the law, he's talking about all of the, uh, of the trappings, all of the things that went along with the ritual sacrifice as well as the code of conduct that was all part of being a good Jew. The law, he says, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, everybody say never. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, <laughs> would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. And would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Now, he's spent the previous chapters referring to various aspects of temple worship. Going all the way back to tabernacle worship, which we've looked at uh, extensively in Numbers. And those of you who have been with us for a while remember perhaps when we walked through Leviticus. Not probably something you imagined being fun, but I will tell you it was probably one of the most exciting series that I've ever preached for me to see Christ in the law it was powerful anyhow <clears throat> the, for me I can't talk about how it was for you it might have been bored in tears but anyway it was great for me so he's alluded to these things already he's talked about the priesthood he's talked about the sacrifice he's talked about the the ritual of sprinkling sprinkling blood on the altar from the sacrifice now with these things already hanging in the air, he develops this. Verse 3. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, <clears throat> this is a crucial thing for us to understand in relationship to the gospel. It's not that Jesus was saying, okay, you know, Judaism needs to be supplanted or surpassed with a new religion. Jesus is saying it was never about religion in the first place. No religious ritual is able to do what only the grace of God can do. You can't buy holiness from God. You can't buy a miracle. You can't buy heaven. You can't come up with a, a, a great sacrifice and say, boy, I've got the best bull, absolutely without blemish, and I've made the perfect sacrifice. We did everything right. Therefore, God must forgive me. No. The only thing God must do is be God. And so God, in his grace, provided the means in the Old Testament law to be able to primarily cleanse the conscience. If they've been able to get rid of sin through this, their conscience would not have to carry the burden of sin. Our conscience in Christ no longer needs to carry the burden of sin. How many of you recognize you still deal with that burden though? 
you still carry that guilt around sometimes in your mind. Now, you don't carry it in a real forensic legal sense, but very often we will let ourselves be plagued by focusing on our failures, on our iniquities, or even whether we did the ritual right, whether we've checked all the boxes the right way. Without even going to the other passages that I'd love to take you to, right here we see that the ritual could never do the religious thing. So drop that from your mind. Let go of the guilt that says, I'm not good enough for God. Every time the devil gets you to think in your mind, I'm not good enough for God, he's telling the truth in part because he only tells the truth in part. He uses the truth to perpetrate the lie. So when the devil says, you are a horrible, wretched sinner, God could not possibly love someone like you, well, he's partly right. You are a horrible, wretched sinner, just like the guy standing in front of you right now. Just like every single human being ever born, with one exception, Jesus Christ. All of us sin. And the reason we sin is because we're sinners. And the blood of bulls and goats can't fix that. Neither can Hail Marys or Our Fathers. Neither can Smells and Bells. Neither can going to church, having a real life t-shirt, listening to the Something Real podcast. Whatever it is that you're doing that you think makes you feel more spiritual, none of that offers life. Taking communion, participating in this Remembrance, celebration, being baptized. None of this offers life. Only Christ can. Let's continue in our reading. Because, as he said in verse, uh, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, in verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. As he does so often through uh, the book of Hebrews, the author is referring to the prophecies in the Psalms and in the Old Testament. Verse 8, first he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. God gave the law. It required these things. But that wasn't what he was particularly looking for. Then he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the acts of the law, to establish the second, doing God's will. And by that will, verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The sacrifice was offered once for all. We do not offer the sacrifice again when we participate in this sacred ceremony of communion. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has, been, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There is a now and a not yet. We have been made holy. We are being made holy. We have been perfected forever, and we are progressively becoming more uh, aligned with that reality. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. This is an Old Testament prophecy that the Lord had spoken And that ought to give us a clear picture in itself that the goal, the point, was never the ritual. The time was coming, you'd said, that I will put my laws in their hearts, I will write them on their minds. Then he adds in verse 17, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Sacred ceremonies cannot offer life, only Christ can. Notice, secondly, sacred ceremonies are physical illustrations of spiritual realities. Sacred ceremonies, such as this, are physical illustrations of spiritual realities. Yeah, that's what he's saying. These are a shadow of the good things to come. It's a, it's a picture of what God is doing. It gives us an illustration of this covenant relationship, what God has done, what God is doing. There is a reminder and there is a proclamation. And it's all part of the ceremony. But the ceremony itself doesn't give life. It just points us to what is real. Physical illustrations of spiritual realities. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians But instead of chapter 10, just flip the page to chapter 11. First Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following. Paul says to the church, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why so many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Apparently there was an issue in in Corinth and God's judgment was coming upon them for their disrespect of the sacred ceremony. Verse 31, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, if we judged ourselves, you're 
translation may render it. We would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Sacred ceremonies are physical illustrations of spiritual realities. This is why Paul points out to them the importance of being able to discern the body and blood of Christ. I take issue very often with some theological terms because we so deeply misunderstand them. So throughout the, uh, the last five centuries at least, there's been a debate. It's been longer than that, but we've seen it since the, uh, the magisterial reformation. We've been seeing this debate between uh, the literal presence of Christ in communion or, or often referred to as the mass, uh, in which the, the elements that we have here are miraculously converted into the physical body and blood of Christ. That was part of teaching throughout the Middle Ages. It actually continues today, even though many disregard it. And there are churches, sacramentalist churches, in the Protestant uh, stripe that, that see what is referred to as the real presence of Christ in communion, that in some unique and mystical way, Jesus has made himself manifest in this ceremony. And I think if, <laughs> if Luther were here to talk about that with us today, he might say, yeah, I kind of got a little off track with it. Listen, Christ is present in the ceremony. But he also made it very clear that he is present with us all the time in the person of the Holy Spirit. Whenever we're gathered in his name, whether we are breaking bread in this fashion or not, Christ is present among us. He said that he would be, and he doesn't lie. He said that I would never leave you. And it's good that I go away so that I can send the helper, so that the Father can send the helper who will essentially, paraphrasing, be my presence with you. So there is a very real presence of Christ in the ceremony, not so much in the elements, but in the same way that we read in 1 Corinthians 10 that Israel participated. They were all baptized. He uses this, this term. They were all immersed in what was going on in the Exodus. They weren't literally baptized, but they were spiritually baptized in that. In the same way, when we participate in the ceremony, it isn't the ceremony that is the participation in Christ. It's our faith. It's discerning the body and blood of Christ in these elements. Not that they are physically that. That would actually be contrary to the law of God. And even in the New Testament, the Jews continued, or the, the uh, um, apostles continued the teaching that we should not eat meat, not eat flesh that still had the blood in it, nor should we ever drink blood. These things were contrary to God's will. So why then would God call us in a literal sense to violate his own law? And yet Jesus teaches us in John 6 because he was really good at stirring the pot, that we are to eat his flesh 
and drink his blood. And if we don't participate in him by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, then we have no part in him. He goes on to say, my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. I don't know if it's listed for you in your program, but you can jot down John 6 if you want to check that out. You can do that for your homework as, as diligent students of God's word. But when he says real here, he's not talking about it's physically that. He still needed to use his body. So he wasn't saying, hey, come take a bite out of me, obviously. He was making a very clear point. You need to be all in with me. And if you see the context of John 6, it makes it very clear. When we see the context of that connected to the context of Paul's teaching to the Corinthian church, we see that the physical element isn't the point, the connection by faith that this is Christ. We are participating in him in this way. It's a reminder of the living hope we have in Christ alone that we share. It unites us. There's one bread. The NIV renders it one loaf. Other translations uh, say one bread, which is probably a little less confusing. There's one bread. We all eat of the one bread. It doesn't matter if, if you're in 2023 Three Oaks or 1517 Wittenberg or in, in North Korea or Sao Paulo. It doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, you're partaking in one bread, one loaf. Because the physical isn't the point. It's just an illustration of a spiritual reality. Now, with those things established, let's move on to understand what this does in us. Okay, so we, we see that, that in the ceremony itself, sacred ceremonies cannot offer life, only Christ can. Sacred ceremonies are physical illustrations of spiritual realities. What are the things that we do with this? And so <clears throat> I'll, I'll try to move more quickly so that we can get to the ceremony itself. First, notice we remember God's promise of redemption. We remember God's promise of redemption. In Genesis 3:15, when God introduced the curse and he spoke the curse to the serpent, he spoke the promise to the man and the woman in the midst of this, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. There was a promise of redemption. In Genesis 12, he gives the promise to Abraham that he would make a great nation out of him. In Isaiah 9, that we see so often that at uh, Christmas time, he spoke of the Messiah that would come, that a, a son, a child would be given to us, one who would inherit David's throne and would be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace, and that the government would be on his shoulders and the scope and duration of that government, of that kingdom would be without end. This is the promise of redemption that God made to us of Messiah, fulfilled in Christ, in Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And in Ephesians chapter 3, if you're still in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, 
you can flip just a few pages here. Uh, don't go too far because the books aren't that big. <clears throat> but you can look at Ephesians chapter 3 verses, oh, let's start with 4. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Okay, so it's not about the law. It's not about ethnicity. The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So we who are in Christ are partakers of, if you have a, a New American Standard, it uses the term partakers. I'm not sure what other translations do, uh, but I like that. We share, we partake, we participate in this promise. We remember in this ceremony the promise of redemption. Secondly, notice this. We remember the great cost of our salvation. I think it's easy for us to remember this part whether it's easy for us to actually remember that great cost, we remember that that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? Most of us recognize that. We talk about the body and the blood. And so it's easy for us to see, oh yeah, okay, this connects to the crucifixion, so we see the cost. The hard part is to see that God's doing more than our little tiny window that we look at. We remember the great cost of our salvation from, if you're still in Ephesians, you can go back to Romans. If you're still in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, you don't have as far to go. It's just the book right before it. But let's take a look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 should be at least in part familiar to you. Oh, I'll start with 21. I was going to just read uh, from 23 on, but let's back up to 21, begin the paragraph. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Okay, it was always what God was saying. The righteousness of God is being made known. The law and the prophets are testifying to that law, but righteousness from God has always been by faith. 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's credited to us. We don't become righteous uh, because we believe. It will progressively sanctify us in that. We are not imparted righteousness. In other words, we don't get immediately, we flip a switch and we become righteous, perfect people. Has that been your experience as a Christian? Raise your hand if you were perfect as soon as you got saved. Come on. Experience bears it out. Your conscience is a reminder of the grace that you need to be able to stand. But the King of Glory has offered this to you by faith. Here's how it works. It's not that it's imparted to us. It is imputed to us. Similar but very distinct words. Imparted means it's given. It's put on us, right? So now we become that. It's a transaction. There's a different transaction that takes place in imputation. 
the imputing of that righteousness means Jesus did it and we get credit for it. He earned the money, deposited it in our account. That's the imputation. It's been given to us. All right, so back to Ephesians 3. Before I get even more sidetracked. <clears throat> nope, not, did I say Ephesians 3? I meant Romans 3. Stay where you were. I didn't mean to throw you off. Goodness gracious, what's wrong with me? I just shared yesterday, I was in, greatly encouraged when I was listening to Chuck Swindoll and my favorite preacher, as you know, in the sermon I was listening to, he got the scripture reference wrong two or three times and I felt so vindicated and great. So anyway, it's the only similarity between me and Chuck Swindoll, I guess. So verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Notice, it was free, freely given, but it was purchased at great cost. We we're justified freely by his grace, and that grace comes through the redemption. There's a price paid that came through Christ Jesus, the one who paid the price came by, in this translation, Christ Jesus. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. If you have a, a really good translation, it may use the word propitiation. The idea of this sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood is that the wrath of God was fully satisfied by the price paid for our redemption. There's a great cost. And it's to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 26, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, a just judge can't just overlook sin. And, to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The great king, the just judge, also offers mercy and grace. It's propitiation. It's an appeasement of God's righteous wrath. We remember in this celebration the great cost of our salvation. In 1 Peter 1, you don't have to look it up, but in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, we're pointed out, uh, Peter points out to the, uh, to the church that we're not redeemed, we're not purchased back with silly, frivolous, earthbound, passing, cheap things like silver and gold. But instead, we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which never passes away. In this ceremony, we remember the great cost of our salvation. Notice also that in the remembrance celebration, we remember that the Lord took on flesh to be with us. We remember that the Lord took on flesh to be with us. We see in John 1.14, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. In Matthew 1.22 and 23, it was our memory verse a few weeks back, 
the angel told Joseph that he would that uh, the child would be named Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins in verse one, verse 21 22 and 23 points us back to Isaiah and it says all this took place to fulfill what was foretold through the prophet that the virgin would conceive and give birth to a son and he would be called Emmanuel God with us the Lord took on flesh to be with us. In Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, we're told that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus isn't some, some lofty paragon that is out there in an ivory tower who's, who's never experienced what we experience. But we can connect with him because he put on flesh and he walked in our shoes. And he faced every temptation, even as we do, and yet was without sin. This is the great transaction that God took on flesh to be with us. And he gave up his life for us. 1 Corinthians 5.21, or 2 Corinthians 5.21 you can jot it down. The one who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus became one of us so that he could be with us. And as we participate in this ceremony, don't miss out on the fact that when we imbibe, when we drink that cup of salvation, or when we eat that bread of affliction, of his suffering, we don't chew it up and spit it out. I'm not trying to be crass. But we take it into our body, and our bodies digest it. And it is distributed throughout ourselves. So that the picture is not only the eating, but that he is with us, in us all throughout us there is no part of our lives that Christ does not claim as Lord you can't be a part time Christian there is no such thing you can't be a Christian on Sunday and live however you want the rest of your your week he took on flesh to be with us all the time his presence is central to our existence. And this ceremony reminds us of that. Fourth notice, we remember that he is returning in glorious power. We remember that he is returning in glorious power. As we read 1 Corinthians 11, we saw in verse 26, that as often as we do this in remembrance of him, we proclaim his death until he comes. We should always be looking forward as we take part in this ceremony, not only looking back to what has been done, but looking forward to the fact that he is returning. And those of us who are in Christ, who have been united to him by faith, saved by God's grace, taken hold of that by faith, we've been united to Christ, adopted by God as his own children, 
with the full standing of Jesus Christ himself, and when he returns, we will reign with him. When he returns in power, we stand with him in that same power. The remembrance celebration reminds us of this. It proclaims his death until he comes again. And as we saw recently in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So as we consider these, these things, we see that this ceremony reminds us of God's promise of redemption. It helps us to remember the great cost of our salvation. It brings to mind for us that the Lord took on flesh his body, his blood, for us to be with us. And as we proclaim his death until he comes again, we remember that he's returning in glorious power. All of these come together for the last thing that it should always remind us of. In this celebration, we remember that the gospel must be proclaimed. We remember that the gospel must be proclaimed. What happened in Luke 2.11? The angels came and declared what was going on to the shepherds. And the first thing the shepherds did was go check it out. Right? That, that's kind of important. Because if I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ myself, then all the preaching in the world does me no good. I need to see him. I need to know him. I need to meet the Christ so that I can be saved. But when I know the reality of who Jesus is, when I've encountered him and I've seen these things to be true. Remember the first thing the shepherds did. They went and told everybody they could. Why? Because it wasn't a religious principle. Let me say that again. Jesus isn't a religious principle. Forget the idea of Christianity. Forget the idea of Christianity as some other Religion as an alternative to the world's systems of religion. Christianity is an acknowledgement of reality that there is one God eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this one God loved the world so much that he sent the Son so that if we believe in him, we don't have to perish. Because he's paid for our sins. And by trusting him, believing in him, we can have eternal life. Marked forever as an irrevocable contract, if I can use that crass term, marked and sealed forever with the deposit of God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Guaranteeing that he will finish the work he began in you. That's God. It's not up to you. It's not a matter of whether you've worked hard enough, you've strived enough. Have I, have I really fixed the problems? Have I, did I take communion this month? Shoot, I missed it. I don't know. What am I going to do? None of that. These are reminders of what he has already done. And this is a matter of life and death. 
The reason the gospel must be proclaimed is because it is a matter of life and death. The judge is returning. The king of all kings is returning. And when he returns, it will be too late. The curtain falls. The show's over. There's no encore. There's no extra act where you can come out and say, you know what, I didn't get it, but now I do. I see him. I'm going to turn. It's too late at that point. The grace of God is that Jesus came in his first advent to save us from his second advent. And by saving us, by giving us the right to be called the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ, now rather than fearing his coming, we can celebrate it. And every time we participate in these sacred ceremonies, it's a reminder that this gospel has to be proclaimed. Jesus, in Matthew 28, verses 18 and following, said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the one who will return. I am the judge. I am the one who brings the judgment. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. It doesn't matter if it's Jew or Gentile. Who cares? It doesn't matter what background. Who cares? It doesn't matter how deep your scars, how, how, how bad your pain, how, how, how deeply stained your sin. You can't out God's grace. Because the price Jesus paid is bigger than all the sins of all the sinners in all the world in all of history. That's how much God loves the Son. And he loved us enough to send him for us. So if you haven't gotten right with him before this moment, consider this your wake-up call. If God is speaking to you today, and you're having a realization that, man, I, I got to get right. I never thought of it that way before. And I want to be a child of God. I don't want to worry about whether I'm checking all the boxes. I just want to be his. I want to live for him. And I want to have that eternal life. You can do that right now. I'm going to do something I don't normally do and invite you to close your eyes. I don't normally do this, and I'm not going to ask you to slip your hand up or any kind of thing like that. I just don't want you to be distracted by anything going on around you. I don't want you to be distracted by anybody else. So let me just say this. If you know for sure that you are in Christ Jesus, if you have been united to him by faith, then I want to ask you right now to pray for every other soul here and those who might hear online. But if you have not, or you're not sure and you feel God dealing with you today, then without being distracted by anybody else, right now, you can come to him. It's a very simple thing. It's not about the words that you say. It's about the surrender of your heart. Lord, I'm yours. Save me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't be with a holy God because of my sin, and I trust, I believe, I hang my whole, my, the whole weight of my hope on Jesus Christ alone, that his death is enough to pay for all my sin, and his resurrection proves that it was sufficient. And I want to be yours. And if you can 
offer up your heart to him that way, it's because God has called you. Don't harden your heart. Don't wait for another time. This is the time. This is the day of salvation. Let this new year be your new life. The Bible tells us that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Born again, starting all over. You're not going to have it figured out. Babies don't have it figured out when they're born either. They got to learn to walk, and so do you. But in Christ, by faith, you're alive. You can open your eyes. As we, as we wrap this up and, and actually take part in the ceremony itself, I want to draw your attention to our memory verse for the week. It comes right out of the text we read at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Paul says, isn't the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Remember, this is in the, the context. He's not saying in this that, that the cup is doing it. That's the opposite of his point. But as you do this, he, he says here that the sacrifices don't, they're not anything in themselves. But when, when these pagans are offering their, their sacrifices, they're offering it not to a, a carving made out of stone, but to demons. And it, in itself, it means nothing. But I don't want you to participate with demons. You belong to Christ. In the same way, if this is just a cracker and grape juice, it means nothing. Now, as the children have joined us uh, and, and these children who have received Christ and, and um, with their parents' discretion participate in this, I want to encourage children and adults alike to take seriously Paul's word that as you do this, you are participating in Christ. And if you don't do this with the right attitude, with a humble heart, recognizing that Christ shed his blood for your sins, then please have the integrity and the good sense to just say, this isn't for me. At least not now. Because you've got to have your heart right. It's a matter of faith. Isn't the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Isn't the blood that we, uh, the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? The remembrance celebration reminds us of the living hope we share in Christ. Let's pray together and then let's share that symbol of hope in this reminder. Heavenly Father, I want to ask you to do what I can't for sure, what none of us can do. Take stone hearts and make them flesh. No amount of shouting or ranting from this pulpit is going to ever change one person, ever. But God, your Holy Spirit, in the stillness and quiet of a heart, gives a miraculous new birth and eternal life to anyone who ever wants it. No one who comes to Christ will ever be turned away. Lord, protect us from the foolishness of thinking we can somehow manipulate this. 
protect a preacher from trying to work people. Protect the hearer from trying to game you. We just want to be yours, Lord. May this ceremony honor you. May we not disrespect it. And may it remind us of the living hope we share in the Christ who came. It's in his name we pray, amen.